me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. As we come tonight to our third and final message, Romans 1, uh, 8 through 15. Uh, Romans 1, 8 through 15. Here's what we read again in, in these verses. Beginning in verse 8, God speaking through the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, throughout history, God has raised up men in whom He placed a burning compulsion to speak his word names i want to come to your mind uh, jeremiah perhaps jeremiah comes to my mind sometimes we call jeremiah the reluctant prophet because when god came and uh, commissioned him to be his prophet jeremiah at first said no i'm i'm too young but God took the message that He wanted Jeremiah to proclaim and He, he put it in Jeremiah's soul in such a way that uh, we remember in, in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah says this, If I say I will not mention Him or speak any more in His name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. There's a man who had a, a burning compulsion. He had to speak the Word of God. I think of men like John Bunyan. All Bunyan had to do was agree to stop preaching, and he could have been a free man at home with his family and his, his blind daughter Mary, and yet he would not refuse to preach. He, he could not. When his wife Elizabeth went before the authorities. Bunyan had only been in prison a year at this point, and she went to the authorities to petition for his release, and she was asked by the authorities, the first question she was asked, is he ready to stop preaching? And her answer was, my Lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. Right? That's the kind of man he was. He couldn't help but preach the gospel. There was in his heart this burning desire. He had to preach the gospel. Well, even more than Jeremiah, even more than John Bunyan, I think the Apostle Paul had a burning passion, an eager desire to proclaim the gospel of God. Now, like these two other men, it cost Paul 
a lot. He gave up a successful, prestigious career. In all likelihood, his apostleship to the Gentiles cost him the opportunity of having a a wife and a family. He was stoned, beaten, imprisoned, and eventually killed. And yet the preaching of the gospel was everything to Paul. I can't help but think of Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed by Wadoni natives in Ecuador back in 1956. He wrote in his journal as a junior in college in 1948. He was up in Wheaton College and he wrote this in his journal. He said, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life and let me burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. For Jim Elliot, a full life was not a life that, that stretched into 70s and 80s and 90s, that that was not a full life for him necessarily. A full life for Jim Elliot was a life spent and dedicated to getting the gospel to those who had never heard it. Two months before his death, he was in Ecuador, and he wrote this. You wonder why people choose mission fields away from the United States when young people at home are drifting because no one wants to take time to listen to their problems. Well, I'll tell you why I left. Because those stateside young people have every opportunity to study, hear, and understand the Word of God in their own language. But these Indians have no opportunity whatsoever. I have had to make a cross of two logs and lie down on it just to show the Indians what it means to crucify a man. When there is that much ignorance over here and so much knowledge and opportunity over there, I have no question in my mind why God sent me here. Those whimpering stateside young people will wake up on the day of judgment condemned to worse fates than these demon-fearing Indians because having a Bible, they were bored with it, while these have never even heard of such a thing as writing. Well, just as Jim Elliot had this burning desire to take the gospel that he knew and that was uh, uh, prevalent in his home, he wanted to take it to those who had never heard, so we find that same passion in Paul. He was a Jew, and he so longed, as we'll see later in Romans, he so longed for his own people, the Jews, to be saved. But his commission from the Lord Jesus and the burning desire that was placed in his heart was to take the gospel to those people who were not Jews, to Gentiles, those who never had Moses and the prophets, those who never had a temple, those who never had a priesthood, those who were alien and strangers. He wanted to take the gospel to them. That consumed his life. Well, here in verses 13 through 15, Paul expresses his desire, his eager desire to preach the gospel in Rome. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now in looking at these verses, we see two reasons that Paul gives for why he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. First, we see that he's desiring to reap some kind of a harvest. And second, we see that he is under some kind of obligation. He's eager to go to Rome and to preach the gospel because he wants to reap some kind of a harvest in Rome and because he feels that he's under some kind of obligation. And so I want to talk about what these two things mean and how they apply to us. So first, reaping a harvest. Paul says he is often intended to come to Rome so that he might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so we ask, what is this harvest that Paul had had reaped in other Gentile cities and now he longed to see that same harvest take place and be reaped there in Rome? The word harvest here is often translated as fruit, uh, other times as benefit. I think harvest is, is a fine translation here. Um, But in this context, Paul seems to be speaking of of two kinds of harvest, I think. First, I think he definitely has in mind a harvest of souls converted to faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to use his spiritual gifts and proclaim the gospel so that there will be a harvest reaped of souls converted to Christ. Remember, Jesus spoke this way of a harvest, didn't he? Luke 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The harvest that Jesus is speaking of is the harvest of souls that will believe in Christ once they've heard the gospel. And Paul was one of those labors that the Lord of the harvest sent out into his harvest to preach the gospel and to reap the fruit of converted souls. In the book of Acts, we see Paul traveling from city to city, Gentile city to Gentile city, preaching the gospel to unbelievers and often seeing many saved. And certainly Paul longed to see this happen when he visited the city of Rome as well. More often, however, this word harvest or fruit is used in the New Testament not to refer to conversion, but to refer to the, result, to refer to the results of God's grace in our lives. We think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. The same word used here in the ESV, it's translated harvest, some translations it's fruit, but it is the same word that was used in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is... It's the same word used here to describe what Paul longs to see happen, what he wants to gather, what he wants to reap, what he wants to obtain when he's in Rome. So he wants to go, he wants to use his spiritual gifts in this church and in that city, and what does he hope to see appear? What does he want to see gathered to the Lord Jesus through the use of his spiritual gifts? He wants to see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness result. And so that is also a part of the harvest that he is after. As the message of the gospel works its power in our lives, a harvest of righteousness continues to be produced in us. So Paul's desire was not just to see new converts added to this church, 
but to see the members of this church grow in holiness and Christ-likeness because of his visit. And so these two together made up the harvest. Now, think about it this way, because I don't think these were two separated categories for Paul. You know, we, we, we think about, all right, there's the harvest of a converted soul, and then there's the harvest of spiritual growth. But I think in Paul's mind, this was, this was all one thing. So here's how I'm trying to get us to think about it. Our desire, what we long to see happen, what we long to gather in and obtain from our proclaiming of the gospel in Rocky Mount, the goal is to see people become perfect, complete worshipers of Jesus. Now that begins at conversion. It continues through discipleship. And it ends when we are glorified at the coming of Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is the owner of the harvest. And ultimately, it is Jesus who is obtaining, who is reaping His harvest through His people. He has already begun to to reap His harvest through the spread of the gospel, through both evangelism and then also through discipleship and spiritual growth. And that's all a part of this single process in which we are being brought to holy perfection and fit for heaven. And when Jesus comes back, He will fully gather all His church to Himself. So we have these two that are this harvest. Conversion of souls, spiritual growth, righteousness being produced. The implication for us, I think, can be summed up in these two twin truths. One, as a church... We must never become so concerned with evangelism that we begin to think that that is the end all and neglect discipleship. And as a church, we must never become so concerned with discipling the members that we have that we think that's the end all and neglect evangelism. These two must constantly be together. Paul's desire was to preach the gospel in Rome so that there would be a harvest to Jesus, a harvest of souls growing in righteousness, converted to Christ, growing in Christ, being made ready for when Christ comes. And that should be our goal as well. Now, when I look at our church, and you you may think differently than me on this, but when I look at our church, my assessment, I, I think we are more prone to the second of those. I think we are more prone to focusing on our Bible studies and our discipleship and the spiritual training of our members to the neglect of evangelism. Could it be that we have become so comfortable in our different Bible studies and prayer meetings that we've begun to lose our burden for the lost and that our zeal for evangelism has begun to wane? We should be freshly affected by the example of Paul who bore the skin being ripped off his back because he cared so much about seeing souls converted. We should be affected by the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself on the cross so that we and all his bride would be saved and converted to him. And so if we have the example of our Savior, if we have the example of this chief apostle, both of whom gave everything for the conversion of souls, should there be any end to what we are willing to give up and sacrifice and do to see people brought into the kingdom? We need to see their eagerness developed 
and growing in us. We must not be content with a baptistry that goes unused. We must not be content in those seasons of, of our church when we, when we may go week after week and month after month with, with no members being added and no testimonies being given of a, of a new soul added to the kingdom. It is true that Jesus is sovereign over salvation and it's true that Jesus sometimes chooses to withhold conversion growth from even the most faithful of churches. But that is never an excuse for being content. Charles Spurgeon once said this, It is conceivable to think of a fisherman who doesn't catch fish. What is inconceivable is to think of one who's satisfied with that. We must never be satisfied with empty nets. We should regularly examine ourselves during seasons of little conversion growth and ask, why is it that we see so few conversions to Christ? When my dad and I used to go fishing a lot when I was in high school, don't get to do it as much, obviously, anymore, we would go fishing, we'd, we're not the best, and we'd occasionally get our worm hooked in a tree or a bush or a dock, and, uh, and we'd always joke, you know, you, you can't catch fish without your bait in the water, right? It's the way it works. Well, similarly, I think we have to ask ourselves, could it be that one of the reasons that we're not seeing many conversions to Christ is because our bait isn't in the water? I don't mean to trivialize the gospel that way, but the gospel is the message that God uses to save. So if we're not getting the gospel out in meaningful ways, well, then we shouldn't expect to see people saved. And so we need to have a passion, the same passion of Paul that we've already seen in the first seven verses of this letter where Paul introduces himself. And what's he about? He's about the gospel. He's about getting the gospel out to the nation so that the obedience of faith will result to the praise of the name of King Jesus. That ought to be our passion. Have you shared the gospel this past week? Have you shared the gospel this past month? Talking about Jesus and the cross with those around us ought to be a daily, regular part of our lives. It should be natural to us. And if it isn't, we should pray and pray that God would make it natural to us and seek to become that kind of person to whom it is just natural to boast about our Savior to those around us. Charles Spurgeon is such a wonderful example of a pastor. I, I wish that God would be kind to grant me the kind of heart for lost souls that Charles Spurgeon had. He was teaching his students, his, these young pastors being raised up one day. He said this to his students. He said, We must see souls born unto God. If we do not, our cry should be that of Rachel. Give me children or I die. If we do not win souls, we should mourn as the husbandman who sees no harvest, as the fisherman who returns to his cottage with an empty net, or as the huntsman who has in vain roamed over hill and dale. Ours should be Isaiah's language, uttered with many a sigh and groan. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The ambassadors of peace should not cease to weep bitterly until sinners begin to weep for their sins. Mount Hermon, we should not cease pray, and maybe we should make it stronger than that. Maybe, maybe we should not cease to fast 
and pray and mourn and weep until we see the Lord beginning to add souls to the witness of this church. Let us not be satisfied. God has not called us to be here on this corner simply to disciple the members we have. He's called us to make a difference in this community in adding people to the kingdom by His grace. Paul longs to reap a harvest. Second, the second reason Paul gives for why he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome is that he is under obligation. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, Paul doesn't explain this obligation in this verse, and the commentators go everywhere with this. Every commentator seems to think there's a a different obligation in view here. My, My personal view is that Paul is speaking here of his commission as an apostle. That when Christ appeared to Paul and made him the apostle to the Gentiles and told him to preach repentance and to establish churches among Gentile cities, that that commission was given to Paul and now he is under obligation to preach the gospel to Gentiles, any and all Gentiles, regardless of whether they're Greek or barbarian, regardless of whether they're wise or foolish. He's to be indiscriminate in his proclaiming to the Gentiles. He is under an obligation to get the gospel to the pagan peoples of the world. The gospel is for all men. And Paul's apostolic obligation to Christ is to preach the gospel to all men. You see the word Greeks? The word Greeks here does not refer to people from Greece. The word Greeks here is a a reference to those who lived in and were imbibed with the Hellenistic Greek culture of the day. These people were considered cultured, they were civilized, they were refined. Um, Religion, philosophy, politics, the arts, even sports were not foreign to those who were called Greeks. Um, the, The empire was called Roman. We call it the Roman Empire. But when you look at the culture of the urban areas of the Roman Empire, it was overwhelmingly Greek. It was refined, civilized, and shared the attributes of the Greek culture that that Rome had taken over. The Greeks are held in contrast to the non-Greeks, or the ESV translates it barbarians. In fact, the word in the Greek is the word barbaros. Everybody say barbaros. You can see that that's the word from which we get our word, barbarian. It's from this Greek word that referred to those who were considered less cultured, those who were considered less refined. They, they didn't have the same level of technology. They, they didn't know as much or weren't as involved in the arts and in education. The Christians in Rome that Paul is writing to would have almost certainly characterized themselves as being part of the Greeks. But those beyond Rome, where Paul wants to go, up into Spain and beyond, more likely have been characterized as barbarians. So what we have here is Paul expressing that his apostolic mission, his obligation to proclaim the gospel, is to all people, regardless of how socially refined they are. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, that has something to say to us. Our obligation is to proclaim the gospel to all people regardless of how refined they may be. Now, it may be that some of the Roman Christians thought of themselves 
as much more refined and important and civilized than the Christians elsewhere in the empire. Those, those Thessalonians or those Philippians or those Galatians or those Corinthians. And, and they could have been saying things like, why has Paul been spending so much time with those other churches and neglecting us? Doesn't he understand that he would be wiser to come and to invest himself in us, the Christians in Rome? Well, I don't know if that thought was was present or not. But if it is, Paul doesn't rebuke that thought here, though the whole message of Romans is going to undercut that very kind of pride. But what he does say is, I'm not called to any one group of people who are Gentile. My obligation is to all, whether you call them Greeks or whether you call them barbarians. The second contrast Paul makes, you see it here in verse 14, is to the wise and the foolish. And these categories correlate with the ones above them. Uh, The wise, the Greeks, the foolish, the barbarians. The Roman Christians lived at the center of society in the empire, and they would have been considered wise in worldly thinking, They would have been aware of the latest philosophers and thinkers. Most of them would probably have been well-educated. Even many of the slaves among them would have been educated. And this was almost certainly not the case beyond Rome and to Spain. And it wasn't the case in most of the rural areas of the Roman Empire. And yet Paul had been called to preach the gospel to all people regardless of their learning and understanding. The implication for us is that in our daily lives, as we seek to talk about our Lord to others, we should not limit our evangelism to any particular group of people. We must not hesitate to speak to someone merely because of a different skin color, or because they are poor, or because they are rich. As Christians, we should not hesitate to have friendly relationships with all people and to seek in every one of those relationships to point our friends to Christ. Whether a person is dressed well or dressed badly, whether they share the same values we share, we should not hesitate to witness to criminals, we should not hesitate to witness to CEOs or others who may um, intimidate us, Uh, We should not hesitate to witness to homosexuals or to others who are deeply entrenched in a lifestyle of sin. We should not hesitate to witness to anyone because of skin color, because of race. Rather, to all people, we should be willing to boast about our Savior and tell of His mercy on all who will believe. Amen? Well, Paul says he's obliged, and he's obliged because of his apostolic commission. We're obliged because we're Christians. And because we're told in Corinthians, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ and being all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And so we have an obligation, not most of us, maybe there's some in here, I don't know, that God is calling to be a missionary and to, to be obligated to a particular tribe or to go overseas. But most of us in this room, our obligation right here in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, is simply to be a witness to Christ. And so I want to ask this question, to whom are we obliged? And the answer, of course, is, is all people, but I think it works a little differently than that. Um, as, as a part of the church of Christ, we share in the mission of the church. 
to bear witness to Christ in Judea, Samaria, sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when I think about this obligation in my life, and it's a joyful obligation, I see it working in concentric circles. Let me explain what I mean. I'm at the center. Okay, so here's, here's my life. So if I start with, with me here, and I start thinking about who are the people immediately around me, I think about my family. My first obligation as regards the gospel is to make sure that the gospel is regularly proclaimed, known, heard, understood by my family. Before my obligation to the nations, before my obligation to Mount Hermon, before my obligation to my community, is my obligation to my wife and children to make sure that they know and hear the gospel regularly. The Bible leaves no doubt that I have that obligation. Ephesians 5 tells me I'm to be a living model of the gospel towards my wife each and every day. She is to see in me the kind of love that Christ has for His people. I am to be sacrificial and and serving in my relationship to her. Ephesians 5 says that I'm to nourish her. And I don't think that's referring mainly to, to providing physical food for the family. I think it refers to providing spiritual nourishment. The gospel from every passage of Scripture proclaimed to my wife for her spiritual benefit. And then also to my children. We think about Deuteronomy 5 or so many of the Psalms that talk about every day proclaiming the truths of God, who He is and His commandments to your children. And so in my life, if I'm here, the, my first obligation as regards the gospel is to my family. Now, in my life, you think about your life, what it would like for you, it might be a little different, but in my life, the next circle after my immediate family would be my, my church family my calling is is a pastor and also because I'm a church member. Because I'm a church member, I've made a commitment, a covenant to you to be a means of grace in your life. And so particularly my, my calling by Christ is to do all I can to help press the gospel into your mind, into your ears, and into your hearts as regularly as possible. I have an obligation to my family's spiritual well-being first and then to the spiritual well-being of this church to bring the gospel to you week in and week out, praying that the Lord will produce harvest among you, a harvest of converted souls, a harvest of spiritual growth, that when Christ comes, if He were to come tomorrow and to take to Himself His people from Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, I want there to be a great harvest there for Him to come and take because of the way the gospel has been presented and preached and and lived out before you. So I have an obligation to my family. I have an obligation to my church. And then I have an obligation to my community. I don't live in Uzbekistan, and I don't live in India. God and His providence has placed me in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, Nash County. And so while I am to care about these other nations, we're going to talk about that, we, we, I am obligated as a part of the Church of Christ to the nations, but He has placed me every day living my life, going to Walmart and eating at Arby's, and you know, my life is lived in Rocky Mount. And so I'm to be salt and light here. I am to be, have a, a, a desire, an eagerness, to make the gospel known here in this community. And that includes all people in my community. It's an obligation to those who are most ripe for the gospel. 
those who in our community who recognize their own weakness already, who already know their need of help. This is why Jesus in Luke 14 says that we're to call the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And so I'm to, I'm to do what I can to bring the gospel to them especially as we go out to the highways and to the hedges to call all people in Rocky Mountain and beyond to Christ. Mount Hermon, we, we are to have a special love for the community in which God has placed us. And we ought to have a special burden in our heart to see God do a great work in this community. More about that in, in more weeks and months, I hope, to come. But I really think that we want to entrench ourselves here in this community. We want to do all we can to help bring spiritual life to it so that when Jesus comes back, there will be a great harvest here. Well, finally, in my life, I have an obligation to my family, to the church, to the community, and then I think about the nations. I have the state of North Carolina, I have the United States, we have the people around the world. And I am to do what I can to help support the cause of Christ, saving his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, for me, that means keeping informed, it means praying, it means giving. Because I'm a pastor, it means keeping the cause of world missions before the eyes of our congregation regularly, pressing this on our hearts. Moreover, when opportunities arise, I'm called to do what I can to help strengthen the work of missionaries and, and church planners. So how does this work in your life? I've shared with, with the deacons, and my dad was here this morning, next July... Uh, he is leading a team to Romania. And uh, they're going to have uh, one team, three groups. One group doing medical missions, helping set up a free health clinic. Uh, one group doing vacation Bible school kind of activities with kids, presenting the gospel to kids. And another group that's going to be going door to door and just doing personal evangelism. Uh, we've been invited to, to send some folks if we want to go. I'd love to see Mount Hermon send two, three, four folks to go be a part of this, this trip in July. And so... Maybe that's something you can think about and pray about. Do you have that eagerness to preach the gospel that Paul had? And if not, what can you do to be freshly stirred up by God? Look at your life. and How do the circles work in your life? Do you believe that those who have been given much have a joyful responsibility to give of what they've received to others? We as Christians have been given eternal, abundant blessing from a fountain that will never run dry. Surely, we can offer that same living water to others. Are you and I, like Paul, eager to share the gospel? I pray that we are. And we should pray that God would make us so. Amen.